Section 1 of Billy Budd. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scientific Methodist. Billy Budd by Herman Melville. Section 1. Chapter 1. In the time before steamships, or then more frequently than now, a stroller along the docks of any considerable seaport would occasionally have his attention arrested by a group of bronzed mariners, man-of-war's men, or merchant sailors in holiday attire ashore on liberty. In certain instances they would flank, or, like a bodyguard, quite surround some superior figure of their own class, moving along with them like Aldebaran among the lesser lights of his constellation. That signal object was the, quote, handsome sailor, end quote, of the less prosaic time alike of the military and merchant navies. With no perceptible trace of the vainglorious about him, rather, with the offhand unaffectedness of natural regality, he seemed to accept the spontaneous homage of his shipmates. A somewhat remarkable instance recurs to me. In Liverpool, now half a century ago, I saw under the shadow of the great dingy street wall of Prince's Dock, an obstruction long since removed, a common sailor, so intensely black that he must needs have been a native African of the unadulterate blood of Ham. A symmetric figure much above the average height, the two ends of a gay silk handkerchief thrown loose about the neck danced upon the displayed ebony of his chest. In his ears were big hoops of gold, and a Scotch Highland bonnet with a tartan band set off his shapely head. It was a hot noon in July, and his face, lustrous with perspiration, beamed with barbaric good humor. In jovial sallies right and left, his white teeth flashing into view, he rollicked along, the center of a company of his shipmates. These were made up of such an assortment of tribes and complexions as would have well fitted them to be marched up by Anacharsis Clutes before the bar of the First French Assembly as representatives of the human race. At each spontaneous tribute rendered by the wayfarers to this black pagod of a fellow, the tribute of a pause and stare, and less frequent an exclamation, the motley retinue showed that they took that sort of pride in the evoker of it which the Assyrian priests doubtless showed for their grand sculptured bull when the faithful prostrated themselves. To return. If in some cases a bit of a nautical murat in setting forth his person ashore, the handsome sailor of the period in question evinced nothing of the dandified Billy B. Dam, an amusing character all but extinct now, but occasionally to be encountered, and in a form yet more amusing than the original, at the tiller of the boats on the tempestuous Erie Canal, or, more likely, vaporing in the groggeries along the towpath. Invariably a proficient in his perilous calling, he was also more or less of a mighty boxer or wrestler. It was strength and beauty. Tales of his prowess were recited. Ashore he was the champion, afloat the spokesman, on every suitable occasion always foremost. Close reefing topsails in the gale, there he was, astride the weather yardarm, foot in stirrup, both hands tugging at the earring as at a bridle, in very much the attitude of young Alexander curbing the fiery Bucephalus. A superb figure, tossed up as by the horns of Taurus against the thunderous sky, cheerily hallooing to the strenuous file along the spar. 
The moral nature was seldom out of keeping with the physical make. Indeed, except as toned by the former, the comeliness and power, always attractive in masculine conjunction, hardly could have drawn the sort of homage the handsome sailor in some examples received from his less gifted associates. Such a cynosure, at least in aspect, and something such too in nature, though with important variations made apparent as the story proceeds, was welkin-eyed Billy Bud, or Baby Bud, as more familiarly, under circumstances hereafter to be given, he at last came to be called. Aged twenty-one, a foretopman of the fleet toward the close of the last decade of the eighteenth century. It was not very long prior to the time of the narration that follows that he had entered the king's service, having been impressed on the narrow seas from a homeward-bound English merchantman into a seventy-four outward-bound, HMS Indomitable, which ship, as was not unusual in those hurried days, had been obliged to put to sea short of her proper complement of men. Plump upon Billy at first sight in the gangway, the boarding officer, Lieutenant Ratcliffe, pounced, even before the merchantman's crew formally was mustered on the quarter-deck for his deliberate inspection, and him only he selected. For whether it was because the other men when ranged before him showed to ill advantage after Billy, or whether he had some scruples in view of the merchantman being rather short-handed, however it might be, the officer contented himself with his first spontaneous choice. To the surprise of the ship's company, though much to the lieutenant's satisfaction, Billy made no demur. But indeed, any demur would have been as idle as the protest of a goldfinch popped into a cage. Noting this uncomplaining acquiescence, all but cheerful, one might say, the shipmates turned a surprised glance of silent reproach at the sailor. The shipmaster was one of those worthy mortals found in every vocation, even the humbler ones the sort of person whom everybody agrees in calling a respectable man, and, nor so strange to report as it may appear to be, though a plowman of the troubled waters, lifelong contending with the intractable elements, there was nothing this honest soul at heart loved better than simple peace and quiet. For the rest, he was fifty or thereabouts, a little inclined to corpulence, a prepossessing face, unwhiskered and of an agreeable color, a rather full face, humanely intelligent in expression. On a fair day, with a fair wind and all going well, a certain musical chime in his voice seemed to be the veritable unobstructed outcome of the innermost man. He had much prudence, much conscientiousness, and there were occasions when these virtues were the cause of overmuch disquietude in him. On a passage, so long as his craft was in any proximity to land, no sleep for Captain Graveling. He took to heart those serious responsibilities not so heavily borne by some shipmasters. Now, while Billy Budd was down in the forecastle getting his kit together, the Indomitable's lieutenant, Burley and Bluff, nowise disconcerted by Captain Graveling's omitting to proffer the customary hospitalities on an occasion so unwelcome to him, an omission simply caused by preoccupation of thought, unceremoniously invited himself into the cabin and also to a flask from the spirit locker, a receptacle which his experienced eye instantly discovered. In fact, he was one of those sea-dogs in whom all the hardship and peril of naval life in the great prolonged wars of his time never impaired the natural instinct for sensuous enjoyment. His duty he always faithfully did, but duty is sometimes a dry obligation, and he was for irrigating its aridity whensoever possible with a fertilizing decoction of strong waters. 
For the cabin's proprietor, there was nothing left but to play the part of the enforced host with whatever grace and alacrity were practicable. As necessary adjuncts to the flask, he silently placed tumbler and water jug before the irrepressible guest. But excusing himself from partaking just then, dismally watched the unembarrassed officer deliberately diluting his grog a little, then tossing it off in three swallows, pushing the empty tumbler away, yet not so far as to be beyond easy reach, at the same time settling himself in his seat, smacking his lips with high satisfaction, and looking straight at the host. These proceedings over, the master broke the silence, and there lurked a rueful reproach in the tone of his voice. Lieutenant, you are going to take my best man from me, the jewel of him. Yes, I know, rejoined the other, immediately drawing back the tumbler preliminary to a replenishing. Yes, I know. Sorry. Beg pardon, but you don't understand, Lieutenant. See here now. Before I shipped that young fellow, my forecastle was a rat pit of quarrels. It was black times, I tell you, aboard the rights here. I was worried to that degree my pipe had no comfort for me. But Billy came, and it was like a Catholic priest striking peace in an Irish shindy. Not that he preached to them or said or did anything in particular, but a virtue went out of him, sugaring the sour ones. They took to him like hornets to treacle, all but the bluffer of the gang, the big shaggy chap with the fire-red whiskers. He indeed, out of envy perhaps of the newcomer, and thinking such a sweet and pleasant fellow, as he mockingly designated him to the others, could hardly have the spirit of a gamecock, must needs bestir himself in trying to get up an ugly row with him. Billy forbore with him, and reassured with him in a pleasant way. He is something like myself, lieutenant, to whom aught like a quarrel is hateful, but nothing served. So in the second dog-watch one day, the red whiskers, in presence of the others, under pretense of showing Billy just whence a sirloin steak was cut, for the fellow had once been a butcher, insultingly gave him a dig under the ribs. Quick as lightning, Billy let fly his arm. I dare say he never meant to do quite as much as he did, but anyhow he gave the burly fool a terrible drubbing. It took about half a minute, I should think. And Lord bless you, the lubber was astonished at the celerity. And will you believe it, Lieutenant? The Red Whiskers now really loves Billy. Loves him, or is the biggest hypocrite that ever I heard of. But they all love him. Some of them do his washing, darn old trousers for him. The carpenter is at odd times making a pretty little chest of drawers for him. Anybody will do anything for Billy Budd, and it's the happy family here. Now, Lieutenant, if that young fellow goes, I know how it will be aboard the rights. Not again very soon shall I, coming up from dinner, lean over the capstan smoking a quiet pipe. No, not very soon again, I think. I, Lieutenant, you are going to take away the jewel of him. You are going to take away my peacemaker. And with that, the good soul had really some ado in checking a rising sob. Well, said the Lieutenant, who had listened with amused interest to all this, and now waxing merry with his tipple, well, blessed are the peacemakers, especially the fighting peacemakers. And such are the seventy-four beauties, some of which you see poking their noses out of the portals of yonder warship lying to for me pointing through the cabin windows at the indomitable. But courage! Don't look so downhearted, man! Why, I pledge you in advance the royal approbation. Rest assured that His Majesty will be delighted to know that in a time when his hardtack is not sought for by sailors with such avidity as should be, 
a time also when some shipmasters privily resent the borrowing from them of a tar or two for the service, his majesty, I say, will be delighted to learn that one shipmaster at least cheerfully surrenders to the king the flower of his flock, a sailor who with equal loyalty makes no dissent. But where's my beauty? Ah, looking through the cabin's open door, here he comes, and by Jove, lugging along his chest, Apollo with his portmanteau. My man, stepping out to him, you can't take that big box aboard a warship. The boxes there are mostly shot boxes. Put your duds in a bag, lad. Boot and saddle for the cavalryman. Bag and hammock for the man of war's man. The transfer from chest to bag was made, and after seeing his man into the cutter and then following him down, the lieutenant pushed off from the rights of man. That was the merchant ship's name, though by her master and crew abbreviated in sailor fashion into the rights. The hard-headed Dundee owner was a staunch admirer of Thomas Paine, whose book in rejoinder to Burke's arraignment of the French Revolution had then been published for some time and had gone everywhere. In christening his vessel after the title of Payne's volume, the man of Dundee was something like his contemporary ship owner, Stephen Gerard of Philadelphia, whose sympathies alike with his native land and its liberal philosophies he evinced by naming his ships after Voltaire, Diderot, and so forth. But now, when the boat swept under the merchantman's stern, an officer and oarsman were noting, some bitterly and others with a grin, the name emblazoned there, just then it was that the new recruit jumped up from the bow where the coxswain had directed him to sit, and, waving his hat to his silent shipmates sorrowfully looking over at him from the taffrail, bade the lads a genial goodbye, then making a salutation as to the ship herself, and goodbye to you too, old rights of man. Down, sir, roared the lieutenant, instantly assuming all the rigor of his rank, though with difficulty repressing a smile. To be sure, Billy's action was a terrible breach of naval decorum, but in that decorum he had never been instructed, in consideration of which the lieutenant would hardly have been so energetic in reproof but for the concluding farewell to the ship. This he rather took as meant to convey a covert sally on the new recruit's part, a sly slur at impressment in general, and that of himself in especial. And yet, more likely, if satire it was in effect, it was hardly so by intention, for Billy, though happily endowed with the gaiety of high health, youth, and a free heart, was yet by no means of a satirical turn. The will to it and the sinister dexterity were alike wanting. To deal in double meaning and insinuations of any sort was quite foreign to his nature. As to his enforced enlistment, that he seemed to take pretty much as he was wont to take any vicissitudes of weather. Like the animals, Though no philosopher, he was, without knowing it, practically a fatalist. And it may be that he rather liked this adventurous turn in his affairs, which promised an opening into novel scenes and martial excitements. Aboard the Indomitable, our merchant sailor was forthwith rated as an able seaman, and assigned to the starboard watch of the foretop. He was soon at home in the service, not at all disliked for his unpretentious good looks and a sort of genial, happy-go-lucky air. No merrier man in his mess, in marked contrast to certain other individuals included like himself among the impressed portion of the ship's company, for these, when not actively employed, were sometimes, and more particularly in the last dog watch when the drawing near of twilight induced reverie, apt to fall into a saddish mood which in some partook of sullenness. But they were not so young as our four topmen, 
and no few of them must have known a hearth of some sort. Others may have had wives and children left, too probably, in uncertain circumstances, and hardly any but must have acknowledged kith and kin, while for Billy, as will shortly be seen, his entire family was practically invested in himself. End of section 1. Recording by Scientific Methodist.